So we're filming this on a Monday because yesterday with the live stream service, we had some technical difficulties as one might say. Uh, so if you were trying to watch by live stream, unless you were a really, really good lip reader, you probably didn't catch what happened. We had a great Sunday. We baptized a couple of people, heard their testimonies. It was awesome. And then I, I spoke from Psalm 27. And so I, I just, I, I think this is really important for people to hear. Uh, and so we're going to record this this way for today and, and put this online. So hopefully it's of benefit to you as well. What we're going to talk about today, the big question is, who are you living for? Whose approval are you living for? And the danger with asking this question when it's like churchy people that we're talking to is that as soon as you hear this, you go, well, I know the right answer. I live for God. I live for his approval. Check. Got it. Now I can just kind of phase out for the next 30 minutes and think about all the words that start with Z or something like that. I don't know how you spend your mental spare time, but don't, but don't do that because we want to dig into this more deeply. We want to ask, are we actually living out who we say we're living for? And to get at that, we want to look at Psalm 27. So I, I think we're going to put this on the screen. But if, if not, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 27. I'll read it out. And, and actually, before we do that, let's, let's just pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring these words. And I thank you that these words are not just words that were relevant 3,000 years ago, but that they are words that speak right into our human condition today. They speak into our hearts and they show us, Lord, a better way to live than what's on offer in our world. And so I pray that anybody who listens to this would hear the goodness of living life for you and that their lives would be changed as a result. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 27. The Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. 
Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So that question about who we live for, whose approval we're, we're living for, one of the options for this is to live for the approval of the masses. And David addresses this throughout. He goes, who should I fear? Who should I be afraid of? And the reality is that if, if it is David who's writing the psalm, and uh, those, those subtitles under the psalms, those aren't like original, they're, they're, they come later on, so we don't know for sure, but let's assume that David wrote this psalm. If David wrote this psalm, he had a lot of people that he could have been afraid of. He, he goes on in the psalm, he says, when the wicked advance against me to devour me. He doesn't say if, he doesn't go, hey, Imagine if in some crazy parallel universe there were these rapscallions who kind of who came and tried to attack me. He says, when? For him, it's not a hypothetical. Like this will definitely happen. In fact, in verse 6, he says, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. This is happening right now for David. It's present tense. Again, he says in verse 12, don't turn me over to the desire of my foes for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. This is a reality for him. This is all happening right now. And again, if it is David, it's hard to pinpoint one particular situation where he could have written this because this kind of thing happened to him like all the time. Somebody was trying to kill him like every other week. It was like, oh, it's, it's the second Monday of the month. It's probably the time when somebody's going to kill me. Like it was just like a regular occurrence for David. And, and it really was a regular occurrence probably for any king in the ancient world. If you have the throne, people are going to come for it. I've never watched Game of Thrones. It's a little Christian virtue signaling there, a little Christian flex. But I read a Wikipedia article about it. The first two paragraphs said, that's what Game of Thrones, this huge cultural phenomenon, is all about. It's all about, you've got the throne, people are coming for it. And, uh, and we see it in modern politics today, that if you have political power, people are coming for you. The, the difference, of course, in the ancient world and, and in some places of the world today is that they're literally coming to take your life. And not, not just people from within who want to become the king, but other kings from outside who are attacking and trying to subjugate your nation. And, and this happened to Israel, and then David did it to others as well. Now, I, I think about that, and I think, well, is this really relevant then for us? Like, this isn't really our life, right? But then I think about that last kind of line that I read about false witnesses rising up against me and, and malicious accusations being spouted at me. And I thought, well, that's pretty relevant. That's pretty relatable. You know, in, a, in an increasingly online world, it's really easy and really common for people to say all kinds of nasty things about other people to other people because you don't have to, you don't have to say it face to face. All of a sudden you have a lot more courage when you don't have to actually look them in the eye or when you can hide behind some anonymous username or avatar. And so the statistics tell us that something like 14%, I think it is, of people have experienced cyberbullying, like bullying online in the last 30 days, that 34% of people have experienced cyberbullying at some point in their life, that 60% of teenagers have experienced 
cyberbullying, and 70% would say they've had rumors spread about them online, which is pretty similar to the cyberbullying thing. And then like 87% say that they've witnessed, teenagers say they've witnessed cyberbullying, even if it didn't happen directly to them. So if you're a kid growing up in the world today, the chances are that you've had people spreading malicious accusations, false witnesses rising up against you. And this has caused immense anxiety and depression because, because you just got all of these people who are speaking against you. And then you have the whole phenomenon of, of cancel culture, where if you say anything that deviates from the dominant accepted narrative, you might get fired, you might get kicked out of school, that trophy, that, that, that statue you just had made up of yourself is going to get toppled down, you're going to get cancelled, you're going to get devoured. I mean, this, this is a reality in our world today. The point is, even if the form or expression has changed, this kind of thing is a given in the world, and, and it's no different for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us that we should actually, as followers of Jesus, we should expect this to happen. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not usually like the lead-off line on those tracts that people hand out. You know, hey, you want to get persecuted? This is a good way to do it. But it's a, it's a reality of being a follower of Jesus. Uh, Jesus in John 15 says that if the world hated him, it's going to hate his disciples. If the world persecuted him, it's going to persecute his disciples. That however the world treated Jesus, they're going to they're going to treat his his people. And from a Christian perspective, there's, there's actually comfort here. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're persecuted, if you're spoken against because of your faith in Jesus, You've been marked out as one of God's people. And there's a blessing there. He's with you in that. So, so this, is, this is a given in the world, including as Christians. But here's the point for the morning, this morning, this, 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 the question today about who we're living for. Some of us are people pleasers. I count myself as one of those. I, I want everybody to like me. And I, I have a hard time understanding sometimes why Somebody wouldn't. Like, like if somebody has a problem with me, I'm, I'm like, well, why? Like, I'm, I'm a nice person. I smile a lot. You know, I, I hate cats, but I've never killed a single one in my life. That's how, that's how nice and likable of a person I am. It's a pretty low, low bar, I know. But, uh, but it just drives me crazy sometimes when somebody has a problem with me and it's like, I, I just want to figure out how do I change their mind? How do I get them to, to like me? I, I don't know if you're like that at all. I am really jealous of people who just don't give a rip. Like, I don't care what people think of me. It doesn't matter. It, it, I care. And so for people like me and, and you, if, if you can relate to that, this is a good reminder to us that if we live for the approval of everyone everywhere, it's guaranteed to fail, 
It's, it's never, it's never going to happen. We're going to drive ourselves crazy and we're, we're always going to fail at this. David got this. He, 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 did, he knew. He knew that he would have people who would not be in favor of his success. He knew he would have people who would speak against him. He knew he would have people who were even trying to destroy him in various ways. And I, I think all of us uh, are, do well to just lay down that need to please everyone, accept the fact that that's not going to be the case and move on. Now, a lot of people, even if they don't care about pleasing everyone, they would say, well, if I at least have the approval of some of the closest people in my life, you know, if, if at least they think well of me, then I know that I'm doing well. And in this psalm, David considers the possibility that even that might not happen. That verse in, uh, that, that, that sentence in verse 10, where he says, though my father and mother forsake me. Now, father and mother, that, that's huge. Those are the people in your life that you expect, that you, that you rely on to, to support you, to have your back. And usually they do, but of course, there are so many examples in history of people who have experienced the opposite, tragically, from their parents. Uh, and this sometimes happens exactly because of faith in Jesus. I've read testimonies of people, especially in Muslim countries in the Middle East, where somebody becomes a Christian and now their Muslim family disowns them, uh, cuts them off, even threatens their life. And, and of course, there are stories of people who have actually been killed by family members because of their faith in Jesus. And that doesn't happen in Canada for the most part, but we do have this thing happening where you'll have a kid growing up perhaps in a, in a kind of a more liberal, progressive home, and then they become a Christian, and it was like they could have come out as anything else, and it would have been fine, but you, but you became a Christian, like, no! You know, that's, that's almost the response, and, and so there's, there's some rejection, there's some opposition from within a family. But like I said, it can, it can happen for all kinds of reasons. Now you might say, okay, well, family, that's, that's one thing, but I know that there are friends who I can count on, that they have my back no matter what. I've, I've chosen, I didn't choose my family, but I chose my friends because they're really reliable and dependable. Well, and not in this psalm as much, but in other psalms, David considers the possibility that friends as well could disappoint you, could reject you, could forsake you. And you might not... Uh, be able to attain their approval all of a sudden either. He says in Psalm 41, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. He says in Psalm 55, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. It's one thing if you've got like an enemy, or, or sorry, yeah, an enemy who, who's at you. It's another thing when, when it's a friend. You know, I, uh, we got these, uh, we, got a, we, got, we got a one-star Google review of our church a little while back. And it was, it was by an anonymous person person. It was like some vague cryptic username and it was like entirely personal directed at me, just tearing me to shreds for various things. For example, that I am nowhere near the same kind of pastor that Joel Osteen is, which I don't know. Personally, I would take that maybe more as a compliment than anything else. 
But that's one thing when it's some anonymous kind of figure out there saying those things. It's so much more cutting, so much more hurtful when it's a friend, when, it, when it's somebody that you've trusted, somebody you've lived life with, somebody that, was, that you just thought would never do it and all of a sudden they turn and, and, and they speak poorly about you and they think poorly of you and, and it's just, it's, it can be devastating. It cuts so deeply. David knew that experience as well. And you might go, okay, well, okay, family and friends, yeah, but, but surely brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians, they would, they would never, they would never do that. I can live for their approval and that'll always work. <laughs> you probably aren't thinking that. But in case you are, let's just, let's, let's get honest and real here too. You know, as, as, a, as a pastor of this church, I, I know that probably if you're here long enough, I'm going to disappoint you at some point. It's not like something I'm planning. I'm not going like, wait till you see what I have in store for you. <laughs> like, I'm not like, I'm not plotting this, but the chances are it'll be fully unintentional and I'll do something to disappoint you. And, and if, so if you're, if you're in any way kind of living for me or for my approval, that, that's going to be, that's going to be trouble. And, and our church as well. I, I love our church. I believe our church is a healthy vibrant, growing church that God is blessing. And I'm so grateful to be here. But, uh, but at some point, if you're here long enough, you'll probably experience disappointment from our church as well. I've started to wonder if at our newcomers lunches and our new membership classes, I should just preface it. You know, I should just say, hey, welcome to the Bridge Church. I'm so glad you're here. Prepare to be disappointed. You know, like just, just put that on the front page of our website. Just to be totally honest, that, that as, as Christians and as a church as well, we're, we're capable of this. All of us are, are capable of forsaking, of rejecting, of failing to live up to the, um, or failing to attain the approval of others, or failing to approve others, whatever. It's, it's kind of across the board. The solution, I'll tell you, is not to cut ourselves off from all human community. Because that, that could be tempting. You know, that could, that could be tempting to say, well, if everybody might let me down, if I can't really depend on the approval of, of anyone, then I'm going to stay single and unattached and uncommitted. It's like the ultimate defense. But it will also lead to misery and to loneliness. Because as it turns out, we are created for relationship. We're created for community. Even if community is imperfect. We, we are created... Uh, and we are saved into community. Jesus didn't just save us as isolated individuals. He, he saved us and adopted us as children of God in a new family with brothers and sisters. And this is a blessing. It's a blessing to be part of the church as imperfect as it is. I sometimes talk about this, uh, this image of a, of a finger being detached from the body and wiggling around and going, look what I can do without the body. And you think, yeah, well, can you imagine what you would do if you were attached to the body? Being part of the church is, is a blessing. It's, it's a good thing. And so the solution to the, the problem of living for the approval of others and how that can easily fail us, the solution isn't to stop having close relationships with others, it's to stop looking for approval in those relationships and instead to live just for an audience of one. 
to live for the approval of just one. And, you know, you're listening to a, a preacher talk here. We're in the Bible. You know where this is going. You know who I'm talking about. We are to live for the Lord's approval. Listen to a couple of those verses again from Psalm 27. Verse 4 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then again, verse 8, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. One commentary I read said that that was one of the most uh, single-minded statements of purpose anywhere in the Old Testament, where it's just so clear, so focused. And it certainly is that, but it's not alone in that regard. For example, the command that Jesus said was the most important command in all of Israel's scriptures, the command that the Jews repeated to themselves over and over and over again, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love him with everything you've got. Because that's the kind of God he is. This isn't like a, a partial, lukewarm, halfway kind of thing. Which is what some people want it to be. Some people wish that it was just like, love the Lord your God with 10% of your heart and 10% of your soul and, and you know, 5% of your strength or whatever it is. And, and, and they kind of go like, frankly, God is lucky to get that much of me. Like, what, he wants more? What is he, the government or something? But this is who God is. God is, is, is worthy of it. He's worthy of being placed at the very center of our lives. He's worthy of all our worship. He's worthy of all our love. I mean, that's just, that's just who he is. And, and David understood this. So he just goes, this is, this is what I seek. I, what, what I want is to know the Lord, to, to dwell in his temple, to be wherever God is, to know him. So when he says that he seeks the Lord, this is what he's talking about. He's not like, he hasn't lost God and he needs to go find him somewhere. He, he's talking about what he desires in life. He, he, and and that's, not even that is maybe misleading because it sounds like an emotion. It's more of an orientation in life. It, it's more a question of what, what drives his life. What, what is the thing that all his decisions kind of come around and support? What's, what's, a, what's priority number one? It's a priority question. And I would say just in general, it's a really good thing in life to have one thing that you've kind of resolved to say, that, that's it. That's the one thing that I'm seeking in my life. The thing that everything else kind of orients, it, orients themselves uh, around. Is this, this one thing. Uh, for example, to go from the business world, Southwest Airlines, uh, one of the most profitable airlines in the world. Its founder and CEO, Herb Kelleher, he, uh, he said this. He said, I can teach you the secret to running this airline in 30 seconds. This is it. We are the low fare airline. Once you understand that fact, you can make any decision about this company's future as well as I can. Here's an example. Tracy from marketing comes into your office. She says her surveys indicate that the passengers might enjoy a light entree on the Houston to Las Vegas flight. All we offer is peanuts. And she thinks a nice chicken Caesar salad would be popular. What do you say? You say, Tracy, 
Will adding that chicken Caesar salad make us the low-fare airline from Houston to Las Vegas? Because if it doesn't help us become the unchallenged low-fare airline, we're not serving any dang chicken salad. I substituted the word dang for something else in the original quote. But you get the point, right? Like here's this one thing and everything else is determined by that. And I've seen that here at the Bridge Church too. Not that we've, you know, been talking about serving chicken Caesar salads or peanuts or anything like that. But, but because a few years ago, our leadership team went through the process of, of reformulating our vision statement. And I've never been really like a, like a vision statement guy, like all these, all these kind of like, I don't know, corporate trends or whatever. But what we came up with this vision statement. We live to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. That's the vision statement for our church. And actually, I found it to be an incredibly helpful tool as, as a measurement for new ministry opportunities. When there are new things that come up, that's the question our leadership team asks is, will this help us fulfill our vision? Will it help us accomplish that? And so we've actually said no to some things that might have brought in a bunch of money for our church, but didn't really have anything to do with our vision. And I think the reason our vision statement has served us so well as a church is because in, in some ways is just a restatement of what David says here in Psalm 27, where he says, this is the thing that I seek to dwell in God's presence, to see his glory. He wants to know God. He wants to walk in this relationship with God. That's number one. Everything else falls into place around that. And so the implication in this Psalm is that even if David has these enemies out there who are seeking to devour him and attack him and maliciously, you know, accuse him of things. And even if he has his family kind of in opposition to him, even if all of these other people around him are standing against him, this is what's most important to him. This is the one, the Lord God, whose approval he's ultimately seeking. And so if he seeks the Lord, if that's at the center of his life, then all this other stuff, it's going to hurt and it's, it's still going to cause him a lot of pain and he's still going to be praying about it. It's not, like, it's not like he's just detached from it all, but it finds its proper perspective because he's seeking the Lord above all else. And uh, I, I look at the New Testament and I see Paul. And, and Paul, I think, is very similar to this as well. Uh, an example, a couple of examples. One is in Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth. We've looked at uh, that letter a few times as a church, including this spring, 1 Corinthians. Paul had a very contentious relationship with that church. He, he was the guy who uh, shared about Jesus there, who essentially founded this church, this church you know, God used to bring into existence through Paul. And yet it was a church because of its cultural context. It cared a lot about image. And Paul just didn't measure up. So it was like the church was always on the lookout for other speakers who were more polished, who had it more together, they were more attracted to than, than Paul. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4, and he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. He goes, you can say anything you want about my speaking abilities, about my, my strength, my appearance, whatever it is, in the end, it's only the Lord's judgment that matters. Similarly, Paul writes to, uh, to the Galatians and he says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? A am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. 
Paul actually goes, look, oftentimes, maybe all the time, you have to choose. Are you going to live for the approval of God or are you going to live for the approval of others? Because if you're trying to do that, then you can't serve the Lord. So Paul just goes, that, that's, that's what I'm all about. And you know, I, I, think about, I think about what it's like to grow up in this world today, a world of, of social media, where, where so much of what people do is in order to get feedback, to get likes and follows and views. And I look at guys like David and Paul, and I think Paul, he, I mean, he, he had these relationships that he poured his life out for these people. He ministered to them, served them, taught them. And he was able to do that even if they rejected him, even if they spoke against him. He was able to love them because he actually wasn't dependent on their approval. He was doing it because it was the Lord's calling. He was doing it because he was being faithful to the Lord, not in order to get their approval. And so in our world today, so many people are, there's so much anxiety, so much instability because people are living for the approval of all of these masses on social media, you know, posting selfies, posting posts that, that are all about just trying to generate, generate interaction, generate likes and follows because that's going to validate you. That's going to give you the sense of identity and worth that you're looking for. And so I, I think especially for teens, young adults, preteens even, you have an opportunity to be set apart. You have an opportunity to actually show the world a different way to live, to be lights in the darkness, because you can have a stability in your life when you seek the Lord, when you live for his approval and his acceptance rather than that of your peers, that of others. You can be different. You can be set apart if you live for an audience of one. Now the last point I want to make today is why God is worthy of that kind of exclusive devotion. And this is similar to last, last week we talked about Psalm 51, about confession and repentance. And we talked about David's confidence that God would forgive him despite how crazy how crazy of sins David had committed, he was confident that God would forgive him on the basis of who God is, on the basis of God's character. And it's the same kind of deal today. We can live, we should live for an audience of one because of who God is, because of his character. Here's again, here again is what David says about God in verse 1. He says, The Lord is my light, and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He doesn't need to fear these people. He doesn't need to live for them because the Lord is his light, his salvation, his stronghold. God's his light. Now, light disperses darkness. And David was surrounded by enemies, by false witnesses, even by people close to him who had rejected him. That's a lot of darkness. He says, God, you're my light. You shine your light on my life. He says that God is his salvation. Salvation has to do with rescue, with deliverance. Again, David's oppressed on all sides. He says, God, you can save me. You can rescue me. You're my stronghold. You're like that fortress in the midst of the war. This, this building with strong towers that I can go to that will protect me from the storm that's raging outside. I mean, that's kind of what David says in verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. He'll hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. David says, God, this is who you are. And 
As people on this side of the gospel, we know. We know that this is who God is, especially because it's who Jesus is. Jesus is the light of the world. According to the gospel of John, Jesus shines the light of God into this world, into our lives, revealing the truth. Jesus is salvation. He is the one who rescues us from our enemies. And now it's not just warring other nations and kings. We're talking about the greatest enemies that we could ever face. Sin and and guilt and shame and, and death and the fear of death and evil. Jesus has delivered us, rescued us from all of these enemies. He's the champion over them. Jesus is our stronghold. I think about that story in the Gospels where uh, the disciples are in the boat and there's this storm raging and Jesus is just sleeping in the boat and they wake him up and go, Jesus, don't you care? We're drowning. And, and Jesus just stands up and he goes, shh. And everything is still. And the way that in the presence of Jesus, the storms are stilled. The Bible talks about how the peace of God that transcends understanding, will guard us in Christ Jesus. This, this peace, Jesus is our peace. And, 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 and the idea that, that in his presence there's peace especially is powerful because when we follow Jesus, we're filled with his Holy Spirit. We become temples of his presence so that no matter where we go and no matter what's going on around us, we have this stronghold through the presence of God that dwells within us. And then David says, again in that verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Here's another part of God's character, that God is the one who receives us, who accepts us, even if everybody else rejects us. Now, I do need to make a qualifier here, because some people would have you believe that God just accepts everyone, no matter how they live, no matter how they respond to him. Again, you think back to what Paul said, if I were trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You you do have a choice. And God does allow you to live for the approval of others, as disastrous as that might be. God receives and accepts those who seek him. That's what the scriptures tell us, that if we seek the Lord, we'll find him. That if we call on the name of the Lord, we'll be saved. And the promise, the rock-solid promise in the scriptures is that if we turn to him, if we seek him, if we want to live for him, if we put our trust in Jesus as our savior, as our rescuer, he will never drive us away. That's what Jesus says. Anyone who turns to him, he will never, ever drive away. That is a rock-solid promise that if we trust in him, he will not drive us away. He will not reject us. He will receive us. He calls us his children. And so God is worth living for because living for him means acceptance by the one who is light and salvation and strength in a world of danger and darkness and brokenness. And and then finally, you just see the peace that this brings to David to live for an audience of one. He ends by saying, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. All kinds of things are happening around him. He's confident that if he seeks the Lord, he will see the Lord's goodness. He's got peace about this. Wait for the Lord, he says. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. A lot of people, they're they're rushing around impulsively with, with this panic 
trying to win the approval of others, David says, just wait. Wait for the Lord. You, I will see his goodness. I don't need to press this. I don't need to rush around. I can trust. I can trust him because he's the one I'm living for. Again, do you not see the goodness of this way of life? To, to lay down this need to please others and to live for the Lord, to seek him, to make that, that knowledge of him, that relationship with him, the, the center of your life, that everything else comes around. He's not fickle like human beings. He's faithful. He's good. He's dependable. He's eternal from age to age. And, and that longing, that desire to dwell in his house forever, the promise of the scriptures is that for those who trust in Jesus, that desire will absolutely be fulfilled. That even after death, we will dwell in his presence. We will see his glory forever and ever. So let's pray. Uh, and I'm so grateful that you listened in and that you joined me in this, in this psalm today. Lord, if there are those who have listened today and have not made you the center of their lives, have not lived for you, I pray that they would hear how good and compelling it is to do this. And I pray that they would make a change in their lives, even today, to live for you to seek you and to lay down that need to please others. I thank you for the word that you've spoken and I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives in Jesus' name.